play an informal reckoning when Book Arts Press Lecture Number One was delivered by Michael Turner in New York City in 1972. Our speaker this evening was not greatly interested in bibliographical pursuits. His is, I believe, Book Arts Press Lecture 385, and we should be heading towards a considerable celebration sometime next year for number 400. But it's a great pleasure to welcome Brett Charbonneau to this podium tonight to talk about his adventures in Williamsburg bibliography. He is journeyman printer in the printing shop at Colonial Williamsburg. Brett Charbonneau. Thank you. Uh, coming from a small town, in my case Williamsburg, Virginia, just a couple hours up the road, I was as a child forced to entertain myself during summer vacation and I was fortunate that I lived across the street from the College of William Mary because this allowed me the opportunity to seek refuge in their undergraduate library, which I was originally drawn to because it was exquisitely air-conditioned and usually empty in the summertime. But I soon discovered that in the stacks one could commonly find books which were older than the college itself, which was founded in 1693. I would frequently check out these ancient texts, which were rarely printed in English, uh, take them home and stare at them. Uh, simply the fact that they were 300 years old and still in one piece when our newspaper didn't seem to last the week really amazed me as a child. And when we had what you want to be when you grow up day at school, my choice for an occupation was clear. Uh, while my friend Tommy expounded on the virtues of being a policeman and Susie explained the wonders of being an astronaut, she was very liberated for a seven-year-old, when it was my turn, I stood up and said, when I grow up, I want to be a bibliographer. There was a pregnant pause. And after I explained what it was that bibliographers did, my teacher questioned this choice. Uh, now, Brett, where are you going to find an institution which will fund this type of position? This had not occurred to me. I will have to find some independently wealthy benefactor who has a keen interest in the history of books, I suppose, I replied. My teacher looked at me blinked, and said, okay. Now let's see what little Jimmy wants to do when he grows up. <laughs> now to be honest, I made this story up, but I wish it was true to be born knowing one would be a bibliographer must be a noble thing. But in fact, I think very few people plan to contribute to the field of bibliography. It's something people turn out of necessity to or stumble across because of related interest. Uh, many of you in the introduction to descriptive bibliography class are here to expand your base of knowledge for a different field or we're steered in bibliography as a method of problem solving. Bibliographical work can be a means to an end, but there is definitely something to be said about bibliography for bibliography's sake. And during my bibliographical studies, I have come to realize a few indispu indisputable rules or facts about this field. Rule number one, bibliography is for geeks. And let me explain about what I mean by the word geek, and I really did search for a different word, but I, I don't mean somebody who, by traditional definition, bites the heads off chickens for entertainment, but someone who cannot stand questions that nobody knows the answer to. A colleague of mine works at the Virginia Institute of Marine Science, and while visiting his facility one afternoon, a mutual acquaintance of ours was working in his lab, a friend of ours uh, named Mac, who holds a PhD in fluid dynamics underground water systems, which normally would qualify him as a geek, but we found Mac one particular day staring at the floor, which was not unusual for Mac, but Mac was actually staring at a pair of scissors that had fallen off his desk, landed point down in the cement, and actually stood there. 
Mac actually built a small shrine for that. But while most people would sit and wonder what the chances of something like that happening was, Mac actually had to know to the eighth decimal place and spent the next 90 minutes figuring out that statistic. Uh, Mac would make a great bibliographer. <laughs> in a recent experience in a, a bar I frequent, I, I noticed that one of my favorite sandwiches had been reduced to a side of chicken breast with beacon and cheese. And I thought, this is interesting. Uh, when asking the waitress what this was, she replied that this was simply a typo and that other menus had come out. Now, most people would have thought, well, okay, that typo's been corrected, but a geek recognized that menu as a variant and wanted the corrected copy <laughs> to complete the set, which is exactly what I did. A geek will notice the lowercase g in the Westinghouse logo in the Alderman Library as unquestionably the most retarded lowercase g that has ever been formed in the English language. Please look at it on your way back to the reception. Very obscure, X-height. Geeks also walk through stores and see skincare products with the word exfoliate on them and thinks it has something to do with collations and formats. <laughs> Bibliography is not for wimps. Like anything worthwhile, most time is spent looking, not finding. It is the ultimate puzzle, which will always have missing pieces, but sometimes even the holes are rather pretty. Rule number three, bibliography will not make you rich. Intense bibliographical study enables you to despise the wealth it prevents you from achieving. <laughs> bibliography will save the world. St. Peter does not let people into heaven. St. Peter quizzes people. St. Peter has bibliographical puzzles, not about the true meaning of life or how to help your fellow man. I think St. Peter will hand me a mid-1830s Mexican octavo and half sheet and say, please collate this. You have five minutes. Begin. <laughs> Just look at bibliography's potential effect on history, yet undiscovered. There's a theory circulating now that the Chinese had time to build the Great Wall of China, because the Mongols printed the Barbarian Handbook with unsigned signatures causing many miscollations. Leading to the famous Genghis Khan quote, I don't care what the manual says, it's rape, pillage, then burn. <laughs> and of course, no discussion is complete without mentioning the Sinner's Bible printed in Edinburgh, 1640, the ultimate textual variance in which the word not was missing from the seventh commandment. Thou shalt commit adultery. My involvement in bibliography is almost by accident. It was certainly not by design. I was only trying to find some answers to seemingly simple questions at the time. I just didn't expect the resources, members, and network of the field to become my most valuable tool. Let me explain my background. I work at Colonial Williamsburg, and for those of you that haven't heard of Colonial Williamsburg, it's one of America's largest outdoor living history museums. If you have heard of Clinton Williamsburg but haven't visited, my marketing department instructs me to wag a finger at you and to come visit us. We have 88 original buildings, 365 acres of open area display historic restored areas funded by the Rockefeller family in the late 1920s. We also have very 12 trade shops, each one which offers us an apprenticeship in its specific trade. I am a victim slash survivor slash product of a six-year apprenticeship in printing at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. And that's right, six years. I started my apprenticeship in 1988 and finished three years ago. One of the most common questions we hear is, what does one do when one finishes one's apprenticeship? And the response is always, do you mean after I sober up? <laughs> I was taught by a master of two journeymen in a shop that uses nothing but 18th century techniques and materials. We operate in a reconstructed building 
known to have housed a business which employed printers and binders, as well as the post office for the Commonwealth. I work in a shop that is open to the public 365 days a year. Our visitation averages in excess of 200 people an hour during our peak seasons. We have three wooden common-style presses, one of which is 220 years old, five tons of type, our own type, foundry, and we use nothing but rag paper. Uh, remember that no wood pulp paper exists in this country until the 1850s. And we only reprint pre-1781 Virginia imprints. Uh, we choose this date because the capital moved to Richmond in 1780 and the printers quickly followed suit. Our very last book-length project was the third edition of John Tennant's Every Man, His Own Doctor, or The Poor Planner's Physician, which involved a total run of 45,000 impressions. Uh, that was a 13-month job. The output of our shop is sold to the public at large. It's used within the foundation and sold to the museum and the rare book community. The apprenticeship in printing doesn't just involve printing, though. It also involves a requisite knowledge of and some acceptable production capabilities in the related trades, which include bookbinding, which is also going to take part in the sewing of books and sheets and cursory finish work or tooling, papermaking, which requires the accurate formation and finishing of usable printing quality papers as well as some writing papers. And all apprentices have to have hands-on cursory experience with type founding, which includes, if you're in James Mosley's class on type, punch cutting, matrix syncing, and justification, as well as casting type by hand. Also wood cutting and some ink making. This is where I come from. This is what I do for a living. Line 17 on my 1040 form reads, Journeyman Printer. There are six in the United States today. I have no idea where the other three work. My knowledge of this trade is applied directly to its interpretation to last year's attendance, at least, of 260,000 folks, which come through my shop alone. And for many of these people, the only exposure to the practice of hand press period printing and book production they will ever see will be through our shop, and it's for this reason we feel we have an obligation to get it right. And part of getting this right is understanding how printing was accomplished during the period. And for the period in general, this is actually very easy. From 1500 to 1810, the presses, the type, the paper, and techniques of the trade simply did not change. Over 35 heavily illustrated publications were produced prior to 1800 on the trade, five of which are in English. The earliest is Joseph Moxon's Mechanic Exercises from 1683, which, if you have not read, is wonderful to curl up with in winter evenings because Moxon is very fond of describing the color of dust that gathers on each, each press in his shop. Uh, one chapter is dedicated to the construction of ink balls, which is what you use to put ink on the type, which includes how many tacks it should take, what skin to use, what kind of handle the wood should be made out of, how to sit, literally, what kind of hat to wear, literally, what kind of tools to use, literally, even comments on the position of the shop relative to the sun, the fact that shops should face north or south to garner the full exposure of sunlight, and how to arrange the interior of the shop so the small letters are underneath the windows and the big letters are hidden under the staircase. In addition, we've also got 70 pre-1810 original printing presses to study internationally. One of ours, we've only recently retired because of its regular use. Understanding how Williamsburg's printers operated is a different story. Generally, research is done on specific trades in specific locations by studying archaeological artifacts and or written records which survive from the business itself. Archaeological digs of the printing office site yielded disappointingly small numbers of artifacts. A lot of printer's trash, which includes part of a washing trough, 80 ounces of type, more than any other site on the North American continent until the dig at Annapolis in 1983, and a pieces of a plate used to print five crown note currency pieces in 1755. 
We also found some binding tools, all of which would fit on this table here with no problem at all. Other than that, there was no equipment, no other tools, no supplies, nothing else relevant to mark that site as having ever been used by a printer. Now, surviving archival records are a little bit more revealing, but are really frustratingly brief. Daybooks for two printers both survive several hundred yards in that direction, very serendipitously here at the University of Virginia, each covering a two-year period. They are not comprehensive. They do not list all expenditures for supplies or wages, and they don't list all income. They're both from the middle of the century, from 1750 to 1752, and from 1764 to 1766, and they represent four out of a possible 72 business years. So our slice of the century's pie is horribly slim when it comes to written records. And yet the Williamsburg Presses were very unique. They are full of superlatives. America's first cookbook was printed in Williamsburg in 1742, The Complete Housewife or Accomplished Gentlewoman's Companion. The first book on sporting events, The Complete System of Fencing or Art of Defense in 1734. The first book on printing printed on the continent, Typographia and Ode to Printing in 1730. And some of the very best how-to books money could buy, John Wiley's Treatise on the Propagation of Sheep, which instructs one on how to raise sheep, shear sheep, dye wool, prepare lamb chops, and I assume uh, appendix is also recipes for mint jelly, although we haven't found those yet. We also have William Burden's Gentleman's Pocket Fair, showing how to choose a good horse, and of course, The Poor Planner's Physician, one of uh, England's very first medical books to mention diabetes by name. The 12 printing businesses in Williamsburg produced over 500 different titles, some by speculation on the assumption that they would eventually sell, some paid for by the crown because they were government books, and some exclusively by subscription. So printers selling books, waiting for enough to sell, closing the subscription, then printing the books, which is an extremely wise way to operate a business. They also did governmental work in a myriad of varieties, blank forms like commissions, appointments, court orders, almanacs every year, a weekly newspaper for 60 years, public blanks. We discovered 18 months ago that George Washington had his lease forms printed in Williamsburg. A man that might have 40 or 50 tenants at a time, someone obviously not willing to hire a lawyer every time he lost a tenant. Pamphlets, political and religious, and ephemera more than one can shake a stick at. Broadsides, blank forms, lottery tickets, book plates, and more things that I could possibly mention. But you have to keep in mind that staggeringly few records and even fewer artifacts bear testimony to this work. And these have traditionally been considered the only way to document an early American activity, written primary source documents and archaeological artifacts. Unfortunately, there is an inverse relationship between what was thought to survive for the trade of printing in Williamsburg and the level of interest our visiting public displays in the trade itself. A lot of people are interested in what we do, partly because the printers of Williamsburg were so prolific, and partly because the press is considered to be such a vital vehicle to the cause of the American Revolution. 260,000 people can't be wrong. And they ask frighteningly straightforward questions. Where did Williamsburg's 18th century printers get their paper? How many people worked in the shop at one time? How many newspapers did they publish per week? Where did they get their ink? Where did they get their type? How much type did they have at one time? Are you listening to me? <laughs> Now, you have to admit that these are pretty legitimate questions. Even though I could draw on over 30 years of in-house research on the trade in Williamsburg, I still could not answer these types of simple questions with any modicum of certainty. And to make matters worse, after six years of looking as an apprentice to set other secondary source material, I still could not find useful answers. And it only takes a few years of looking thousands of people in the face 
and going, you know, that's a good question. <laughs> Duh. Before you start to wonder if the answers are out there, but no one had bothered to look for them yet. John Anderson of the group Yes said once that writing songs is like catching birds in the dark. You can hear them singing above your head. All you have to do is reach up and grab them, which I thought would apply really well to our books as evidence. I thought, started to think about archaeologically recovered artifacts versus surviving products. If something's dug out of the ground, it is photographed, x-rayed, sketched, published, and talked about to the nth degree. But if it's a surviving product from a trade, it's treated with a hostile indifference that defies belief. During my attempts to find answers to the nagging questions, I got tired of reading the justifications for not knowing the meat and potato details. I will now quote some nameless studies. The work of studying each copy of an edition is tedious. Of course it's tedious. That's why it's called work. I quote, little information can be hoped to gain from the intense scrutiny of early American imprints, end quote. But by studying for three years, we've actually been able to triple the number of known Williamsburg imprints from 280 to 900. Now, to be truthful, this approach of studying surviving products of a trade was probably not seriously considered before because so few products survive from most of the other trades in Colonial Williamsburg. We have 12 trade shops. The cabinet makers have 72 pieces of furniture we can document to Williamsburg before 1780. The foundry has 36. The gunsmith has three. There are no known artifacts for the shoemaker, harness maker, milliner, silversmith, cooper, wheelwright, blacksmith, carpenter, or wig maker. From the printing office, we have 12,000 surviving products, more than all the others combined, times 100. It seemed to me that we had a mountain of evidence waiting to be tapped into. So I came up with a particularly obvious idea of looking at the imprints cohesively as evidence. And two, for the first time it seems, include the ephemera which we know made up most of the work these printers did. What I wanted to do was simple, to milk each copy of each imprint for all it was worth. I wanted to look at all imprints, I wanted to study every possible aspect of them and use all the collected information to create a big picture which would help us reconstruct approximate staff sizes, shop inventories, possibly contacts to continental suppliers and anything else that's going to deepen our knowledge of these tradesmen. My colleagues and constabulary were supportive but wary. Don't reinvent the wheel. Surely someone else has done this sort of work. You need to find the report or dissertation and all will be revealed. I like that one the best. Now don't get me wrong, there was previously scholarly work done on printing in Waynesburg, much of it excellent, but all of it on books. They have been enumerated, contemplated, and investigated in varying depths. Susan Berg, one of our librarians, now director of our library, enumerated all Williamsburg imprints above four pages wisely. She wanted a finishable project. But the curious apprentice at the time wanted to know unanswerable questions like, how many pages are in each book? Or, if I get a rich benefactor and go to the Library of Congress, how many books will I see? Questions that her three-by-five cards could not answer. The books have been contemplated by Lawrence Roth and John Hemphill, John Hemphill, and somewhat skirted by the history of the book, thoroughly investigated by Woolman Spawn for the decorative aspects of the bindings. Woolman's thoroughly distracted by that in itself without getting into the structures, typefaces, and watermarks. 
but a little bit addressed my situation at the level of detail I felt that I needed, and none of it included ephemera. Again, the bulk of these printers' works. Just book-length projects had been considered. Mark Twain once said, all you need in this life is ignorance and confidence, and then success is sure. And being relatively confident in my ignorance, I felt I had a good shot. And there I was, a million questions, no answers, and the only thing I could do was play detective with what was several hundred, if not thousand, books and newspapers and God knows what else, which were in libraries all over the United States, and no clue on how to play detective. And in my case, necessity was the mother of intervention. This is where you all are, even now, at a serious advantage over me. I had never heard of the field of bibliography, let alone what bibliographers did. I thought I was alone in the world, plagued by some insatiable desire, a geek without a cause, as it were. So in an attempt to find a cause, I began to write letters, lots and lots of letters. I took the enumerative list, so carefully prepared by our own librarian, and wrote every single institution that held a Waynesburg imprint. Being able to send an unlimited amount of mail on an institutional budget helped here a lot. I sent them a list of characteristics I wanted to record about not just some of the surviving imprints, but all of them, and most people did respond. About a third of the respondents applauded my efforts and offered helpful suggestions. Another third thought I had sent them a questionnaire for them to fill out and told me as politely as possible to drop dead. Another third I thought I was certifiably insane to take on a project with such ambitious proportions and refused to comment on the work any further until I told them, number one, how old I was. <laughs> I guess to make sure I didn't die in the middle of the project. And two, where my source of funding was going to come from, a reoccurring question. Some, I think, assumed that I was already a bibliographer looking for a place to happen and referred me to bibliographical articles in the library and the papers of the Bibliographical Society of America. Most of these I found very helpful, but I only thought they were spurious topics on the history of the book. Not knowing what bibliography was all about still, I didn't even think the subject was the focus of the periodical. I thought the authors of the relevant articles are renegade librarians thinking out loud. But the authors were using books as evidence. Granted, these were almost exclusively European books, but still, they were doing to their books what I wanted to do to mine. One of Murphy's inexorable laws states that to steal ideas from one person is plagiarism, to steal from many is research. So I decided to try and emulate these authors' techniques. I reworked my list of things to look for in an imprint and sent out a second generation to those libraries who responded positively the first time around, and then it happened. One letter came in and said, perhaps you should take a look at Philip Gaskell's work on bibliography. Three or four other letters mentioned this guy named Bowers. <laughs> Gratefully, I picked up Gaskell first because Bowers exhibited way too high a geek factor for me to deal with as a novice. I looked at principles and went, this looks like math, better save this for later. Gaskell, on the other hand, was clearly speaking my language. The first few chapters summed up my apprenticeship, and for the first time in my life, it was all correct. No glaring errors on important details. Round, platens, rollers. This guy knew what he was talking about. I clearly had to find out more about this bibliography thing. This was in the winter of 1991. And just as I was writing back to the people who suggested Gaskell, thanking them for this wonderful experience, someone else wrote and suggested I contact this guy... Bellinger in New York City. Now, Professor Bellinger, director of the Book Arts Press and Rare Book School, was one of the first academic people I had ever written to, so I tried to make sure I ran spell check twice before sending the letter off. I made some, he made some very insightful suggestions and informed me that he would actually be in Williamsburg the following summer for a convention of the American Typecasting Fellowship, Type Geeks, 
And could we talk then? Well, this was big stuff, my first bibliographical powwow, although I didn't know it then. And so there we met for lunch, Dr. Bellinger in suit and tie eating peanut soup, a new experience for him, and me, because I was not a type geek and had to sneak into the meeting, in my shabby apprentice clothes with an exceptionally inky apron, talking about books as evidence with someone besides myself, a new experience for me. And not unlike the ugly duckling, I discovered that I was a bibliographer, and that there were others in the world who were like me, who also looked at books for hours and hours and never read them. I was shocked and thrilled to discover that there was a veritable cornucopia of periodicals and larger works which would help me with my studies, that there were fellowships available to actually fund these types of studies, that it was quite possibly true that no one had ever undertaken a study like the one I proposed, and that if I pursued this idea, I could possibly become the world's leading scholar in colonial Virginia imprints, which may not sound like that much of a distinction, but when you live in Williamsburg, it's a great way to pick up chicks. I was single at the time. <laughs> I am not anymore. <laughs> I am happy to report that since this meeting, I've been lucky enough to start this thing called the Williamsburg Imprints Program, which is a child of the North American Imprints Program, now at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. I've been able to secure enough fellowship money to support a total of 19 months of work on this program and enjoy the camaraderie and encouragement of scholars who lead their fields on an international scale. And let me tell you right now, before or I go any further, I ain't no scholar. I do not write well. I don't split infinitives. I hack them in half. <laughs> I do not have even an undergraduate degree. I left William & Mary in my junior year to become an apprentice. I am not widely published, and in my notes it says, please see number one, I do not write well. <laughs> and yet, everyone, with extremely rare exception, who I have come in contact with in this field, has been gracious to a fault, and many times at great personal expense, in contact with every single time I've met with them, gone way out of their way to aid and abet my studies, been unbelievably tolerant of my ignorance, naivete, and inexperience with the world in which I am an outsider, which is academia, and academia at the same time, <laughs> tried their very best to make sure that I felt encouraged at every bad turn or frustration, and just generally inspired me to continue toiling at a job with they, which they themselves have made sure is not thankless. I am truly fortunate that they allow me to consider them colleagues. And I'll give you a few examples. I have on several occasions traveled to distant cities to meet with these colleagues, seeking aid in specific areas of my work with Williamsburg Imprints. Not only have these scholars unfailingly greeted me with open arms and cheerful salutations, not only have they shared their research and findings they have spent literally decades collecting, and I don't mean they let me glance at their notes, I mean gave me copies of unpublished work. Not only have they endeavored to keep in touch with me to offer assistance of any kind by calling writing, emailing, and personally visiting, but they have frequently invited me into their homes for days at a time, taken time out from their own work to take me to collections to show me only known extant copies of things which exemplify the sort of thing I should be looking for or staying away from, and treated me to new life experiences ranging from live stadium baseball games, beer with alcohol levels which defy belief, <laughs> and explanations of how many shillings there are in a guinea and why. I have never heard of another field where this kind of camaraderie exists. One of the guys I grew up with is now a physicist. He does not mention getting email from Stephen Hawkins about his pesky problem of cold fusion. Another is a computer geek 
Bill Gates does not drop him a note every once in a while to see how Windows 95 is doing. Now, granted, bibliography is a small pond, and maybe the big fish feel a need to stay together to survive, but there's no rule that says that they have to be tolerant of the new kid on the block or share the fruits of their research with any other scholar. Regardless, the field of bibliography is ripe with opportunities. You can tell the pioneers from the arrows in their backs. And out here on the frontier, it's easy to be a squatter. And the neighbors are right friendly, too. So friendly, in fact, let me show you some of the things we've managed to cook up together and how this work has helped me become, or helped me to come up with some of the real answers those pesky questions keep rising to. Paper is a real problem. There is no printing without paper. I'm going to read you a quote from the Virginia Gazette in 1774. Quote, Our customers, it is hoped, will pardon the smallness of this paper, which is the largest we can procure till the supply we daily expect comes into hand. This is the kind of vague reference to paper supplies that drove me crazy during the early part of my work. Where did the paper come from? Did the supply dwindle during the revolution? Did they use low-quality paper for newspapers like today? The only known reference to paper supplies for all of 12 of Williamsburg's printers has been found in the Virginia Gazette in 1775. Quote, as the printers are anxious to satisfy all demands against them and to purchase a stock of printing paper, which at this time is very scarce and cannot be had without cash, besides an infinite deal of trouble and expense in importing it from Pennsylvania, they request that those good customers who are in arrears for this gazette, books, stationery, etc., to discharge the same as soon as possible. Good, but not wholly enlightening. I needed a way to look directly at the 18th century paper itself and try to glean as much as information as possible. Watermarks are at least a partial solution to the problem. A watermark is created in a really strange fashion, which I will now explain. The pulp for hand-pressed period papers made by having water-powered machinery beat preferably white rags to a literal pulp. Paper is formed by dipping a mold, which is made mostly of a wire screen, into the pulp, and the screen strains out a layer of fiber from the water. This is a sheet of paper. A watermark is formed when wire is bent in a specific shape and then sewn to the screen. The wire makes the paper thinner, thinner during the straining and light shows through these areas much easier, making the watermark appear as a lighter design in the paper, which is only visible when it's held to the light. A watermark has the potential to tell you where the paper was made, what its overall quality is, and therefore how much it cost originally approximately, what size the original sheet was before it was folded into a book, which can indicate how wasteful the printers were in the margins, and give you an idea how the big the press was that was used to print it. In short, many of the things visitors are constantly pestering me about in the printing office. And if you want to find out more about watermarks, I highly recommend you come to Roanoke in October to the first international annual watermark conference, the second great thing to drop in my backyard next to Rare Book School. The best way to work with watermarks is to search for them in the imprints you're interested in and then somehow manage to record them. And once you have an image of the watermark in question, you can hopefully find the watermark in a watermark catalog, which will hopefully have more specific information about the mill that produced the paper, which produced the watermark, or perhaps one of your colleagues has seen the watermark before and can share his findings with you. Figures one and two. Watermarks are subtle and working with them can be difficult. William Parks had a mill mostly funded by Benjamin Franklin in Williamsburg in 1744. It disappears in 1751. We don't know what happens to it. Figure one shows the mark as it appears in the paper. 
Figure two shows the mark as it is traced on a light table. One of my predecessors got interested in watermarks and contacted the Wisconsin Historical Society, asking a friendly librarian to page one of the books, known Evelyn's for paper in it, hold one of the leaves up to the light, and describe what she saw. She said, I see two men in their pajamas holding a basket of fish. <laughs> it is clear that oral description does not work with watermarks. And no watermark catalog I have ever seen has a listing for pajamas. <laughs> A way to accurately record them is essential. How to record watermarks. I really use two methods. One is called the Dialogues message, method, which uses a photographic paper. One simply puts a piece of Dialogues underneath the sheet of paper that has a watermark in it and exposes it with fluorescent light. Take the Dialogues out, expose it to ultraviolet light, and you get a blue on white image of the watermark. Figure one is a dialect image. Figure 5 is a raw dialect image, and it emerges from the darkness because that's exactly what it's doing. Number 1 has been photographically treated with a filter and looks a lot nicer. Some papers will not dialects for a reason I am not geek enough to figure out. They just don't pass light. And for that method, you have to use what I used in figures 3 and 4, or fig three and four, which is rubbings. Actually slipping a piece of plate glass, boy, rare book curators love it when you do this, into the book and taking a piece of tracing paper with a real broad based pencil and actually rubbing it. And this will actually give you this image. Figure three is, uh, actually looks a lot more like guys in their pajamas holding a basket of fish. Um, figure four is one of the few watermarks I've had that's actually dated, and it's very difficult to make out, but in the lower right-hand corner, you see 1742. That doesn't mean the paper was made in 1742, but maybe the watermark was, which is somewhat helpful. In addition to changing and uh, recording the watermarks themselves, I'm also recording the, the densities of the wire screen, which you can see in these images, too. A denser screen indicates a higher quality, more expensive paper. A coarser screen indicates really cheap stuff. That's really helpful because the printers in Williamsburg treated their newspapers as the flagship of their enterprise. They were always high quality. They are, well, at least the ones I've seen. I've seen about 500 so far. They all seem to be sized. Um, today we line our birdcages with newspapers for them. It was their calling card. Type is the most expensive part of a printing office. The number of fonts appearing in an imprint can tell you how big a shop inventory was. It can tell you how successful a particular printer was, which can tell you what else the printer was capable of. One of our printers, who was loyal to the king during the Revolutionary War, had as many as 12 fonts in his shop at one time. The one working for the Americans had as many as five. Now, we know that he was in previous partnership with a well-set-up printer. Did their partnership dissolve out of political disagreements, which forced the rebel printer to operate a ragtag operation? Identifying where a printer purchased his type may lead you to other information. The printer you are interested in may not have any written surviving archival records, but his supplier's records may survive in England, and that may help you to set up all kinds of reconstructed areas, which is helpful when you're trying to educate 200,000 people a year. Now, figures 6 and 7. Three years ago, if you walked into our, our printing office and said, where do they get their type in the 18th century? We would have said they used William Caslin's type and they used some Dutch type we've never been able to identify. That is lame. 
And I tell you, people that have 700 fonts on their computer will look you straight in the eye and tell you that. That's lame. We now know that they used type from several foundries, some simultaneously. Now, one of the mylars you have in your packets is labeled English Roman number one. And we're going to look at Jefferson's summary view of the rights of British America, printed by a woman who, by the way, was working for the Crown at the same time she was printing revolutionary pamphlets. Mama said she had a spinal problem. She had one. And if you use this as an overlay, particularly for the uppercase letters R, M, L, and N, you get a real good idea of how the system works. You overlay that M, and there's no doubt about it, that's the same M. The broadside below, which interestingly enough describes the events of Lexington and Concord in Virginia for the first time, news which hit Virginia in nine days. We found about the Declaration of Independence in 21 days. It's typed from a separate area. Matter of fact, if you start to compare the uppercase R to the R in Williamsburg or the G, they do overlay pretty well, but if you look at them side by side, that is not the same letter at all. The R on the broadside is much squatter and fatter. The G in the broadside doesn't have nearly the same shape or hooked serif on it. And yet the italic seems to be a dead ringer. Look at the lowercase f. And I must tell you that there is only one lowercase f in the English italic, which is in the word furor, pardon my uh, Latin, which is really terrible. The lowercase h, which is a quaint letter, it's closed, it looks almost like a b, very distinctive. And the lowercase g, unquestionably the most distinctive letter in an English specimen sheet. And I would like to right now thank God publicly for the word vigile, which is the only word which has a g in it, in the coscu tendem abotera quote. Otherwise, I would not have a clue what was going on. The summary view uses types from Alexander Wilson, and the broadside types were cast by John Bain, both Scots, Alexander Wilson working in Glasgow, John Bain in Edinburgh. The Mylar is, a specimen, is from the specimen book by Alexander Wilson. The italic may appear to be the same, probably due to the fact that Wilson and Bain were partners in Scotland before going their separate ways. Did Bain take some of the italic with him? Did he make copies of the punches? Interesting stuff. Two different printers, two different eras, separate operations. Identifying these sorts of types with mylar overlays has made for some very useful discoveries. When we used to say Caslin and some unknown Dutch face, what we really meant to say is that six different founders provided Williamsburg with its types from four separate cities, London, Glasgow, Edinburgh, and Amsterdam. We previously believed that Williamsburg's printers were limited to using type from only one founder at a time. There were no interchangeable parts. No standards between type founders. Once you started using type from one founder, you were pretty much locked into that person's format. And yet in figure eight, we see type with three very distinct, very different letter forms. All on one page. A violation of the rule. Like Don McKenzie says, one cannot assume all swans are white just because all one has seen is white swans. One black swan ruins the theory. The first, seventh, eleventh, and sixteen lines were likely produced from a different type founder than the type in lines two, five, nine, and thirteen because the letter forms are so radically different. Look at the uppercase C in the complete Mariner 
compared to the C in trigonometry, trigonometrically, excuse me. Totally different letter form. The type in lines 3 and 15, the really huge stuff in treatise and sphere, were actually made by the Dutch founder Johannes Rolu, a fact discovered by using mylar overlays to compare unknown types to known specimens until there was a match. Further study into this oddity revealed John James, an English type founder who collected Dutch punches and matrices, and at his inventory, at his death in 1773, all of these types are present in his inventory. James is known to have purchased punches and matrices by the thousand on a trip to Holland, once 3,500 in one trip. It is likely that these disparate letter forms, each made originally with their own format, were all interchangeable because John James made them all in one place, which made them compatible. Figures 9 and 10 need to be looked at simultaneously. Examine both seemingly identical pages by eye. This comparison of different copies is called collating. You're doing it manually, and you do now what I like to refer to as the Wimbledon method of collating, which involves a lot of going back and forth. If you're sharp, you'll notice that line four in the first paragraph ends differently, and line five begins differently. You also, of course, will notice that the spelling of beginning in the first line of the second paragraph is different. And these are the only variances one would notice using the Wimbledon method. The paragraph schemes are almost identical. The overall layout is over identical. Matter of fact, these two particular specimens even have similar foxing. Now take the mylar, marked figure 9. I feel like I'm describing an erector set here. And overlay it on top of the sheet marked figure 9. Line it up. This is going to take a little practice. This will give you a really good idea of what a double strike looks like when the type is hit twice on the same piece of paper. It's hard to do without a flat surface. But if you get it working right, you'll see that there's a direct match, a direct overlay. It's basically the same image. Now overlay the mylar or figure 9 on figure 10. Anybody that's likely to get nauseous, don't try this. Try lining up the headlines first, and the first thing you're going to notice, maybe, uh, is the marginal note 1603 is much lower. Look at the comparison of both line fours. They don't line up at all, and yet the words line up. Try it word by word. Ignore the spacing. It's clearly the same type, just different spacing. Well, what does this mean? Uh, is it a different setting? Of course it is. Could, could have he have had some catastrophic loss in the middle? If one collates the whole book, you'll find the introduction and appendices are the same. A catastrophic loss would make sense in the middle of the project because the introduction and appendices were probably printed after the middle sections were. Perhaps they did a subscription publication which was met with unexpected high demand after the subscription was closed. And clearly there's more to await the dis- uh, more to this story. That there are no Virginia Gazettes for 1746 or 1747, so no subscription notice is known, and there's no news of delayed delivery of copies, which is unfortunate, and yet Virginia Gazettes are turning up all the time. So you can now see why I'm so willing to become the poster child for bibliography. The stuff works. The printed matter itself can be used as evidence and studied with the right techniques that can tell you volumes. (laughs) Tough crowd. In In situations where little else survives, this may be all you have to go by. 
This is why I heartily encourage any and all of you to pick an area of study and revel in it. And like I said, there are plenty of areas to choose from. I remember telling my mom when I first got into bibliography that this was a field that was 99% frontier. And she said, well, if that's true, at least your potential for serious mistakes is limited. <laughs> I think she was right. Any contribution is useful and should be encouraged. Even scholarship which leads to incorrect conclusions can make some good contribution. It gives those who know better something to shoot at. It gives something on the subject out there. And as Murphy says, no one is listening until you make a mistake. To know what the truth is, one needs to know what the truth is not. In closing, I hope that you can see that bibliography can be an interesting and fun field to be involved in. There is clearly a lot to be learned from the small scraps of paper now hundreds of years old. Some of you here tonight might want to get involved in the study of books as objects, and by all means, stake a claim on the grand frontier. If you do, as a parting wish, I hope that those of you who choose to make a contribution to the field will, as Thomas More said, always walk through smiling rows of chubby duodecimos. <laughs> Thank you. If you had fun with the collations, uh, we've got two real collators, not mylar-induced collators, uh, at the rear end of the uh, Book Arts Press, what's, where James Mosley's class was, which is the, the studio, pardon me, yeah, which has the rear entrance. Please feel free. You will see a McLeod collator and one by Carter Haley of his own design, and he will be there to explain it to you and prove how incredibly wonderful it is. It is also a whistle and decodes secret messages. So go check it out. Thank you.